All right, we are on Sunday evenings. We're in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, one turn to Philippians. We have finished chapter one for those who have been a part of our study, and we'll start in chapter two tonight. Uh, when I was getting ready for this week, uh, my big question was how many verses in chapter two? And I, I didn't want to cheat on any of the verses because so, it's so good. Uh, particularly, I didn't want to cheat on verses five to 11. So that'll be. That'll be uh, next Sunday's teaching, and it, it really is a, an example of, uh, of what God has for us. The first 11 verses here in chapter 2 speak of humility. From, from 5 on, uh, Paul gives us the example of Christ's humility. And, and, and I think if we, we, we talk about our own humility, we're talking about that today in verses 1 through 4. That's what we'll be focused on. But I, I think we genuinely have, genuinely have a problem with humility. I think we really do. Uh, I think we think we're more humble than we are. And, and, I, and I'm not sure that we approach even our own faith from a, from a position of being humble before God and before each other. Uh, talked about this in sharing our faith with, with people in our community and stuff. And, and, and I think many, most evangelicals and many approaches that, that I've been studied in you know, through the years on, on how to approach people with the gospel. Quite frankly, I don't see a lot of humility in it. I see a lot of, of, of the approach that we're right and you're wrong. You say, well, pastor, we are right. Well, okay. Can we, can we rephrase that? It's not that we're right. It's that the gospel's right. And the only reason we know that the gospel's right is by the grace of God. Not because we figured it out. And not because we're super spiritual. And you, know, and you see, again, it, it has a lot to do with how we approach sharing this wonderful truth. Uh, you know, I love my Bible. You love your Bible? But, but it's not meant to be a weapon. You say, wait a minute. Uh, you know, the writer of Hebrews says it's a sharp two-edged sword. Yes, he did. And, and Paul says in Ephesians, it is, it is a, it's a sword of the spirit. I understand that too. But remember, those are metaphors. They are not meant this is not a weapon to destroy people with. This is the word of God. Now, it is, I, I will agree with you, it is a weapon to deal with spiritual battles with. Amen. Amen. But it is not a weapon to destroy people with. And, 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 and I really am concerned that, that we need to learn, I need to learn, to share my faith, and hopefully you'll share your faith, from a place of humility. And, 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 and not only that, to walk as brothers and sisters in Christ from a place from a place of humility. Add to that, if you will, when we share our faith. A huge question for me that brought, brings me back to that place of, of humility is when, when I go share my, my faith with somebody I, I vehemently disagree with, and the question keeps ringing in my ear, do you love them? Do you love them? Do you love that group that are caught up in a cult? Do you love them? Do you love that group that, that says hateful things about you and your church and, and your Jesus? Do you love them? Say, well, I'm not sure that we need to. I would say we desperately need to. I'm more concerned today with the, with the movement in the evangelical church is that they're rejecting the gospel not because of the gospel's sake, but they're rejecting the gospel because of us. And the attitude we carry, 
and, and the persona that we put forth, uh, that we got it and they don't. And, and yes, you say, well, we got it. Yeah, but it, it's not a place to, of sex, uh, self-exaltation. That's not, it's not what it is. It, it's, that's not what, what it's about. And I think we, we have a tendency to share the gospel from our own strength rather than share it from a place of brokenness and humility and total reliance upon the Holy Spirit to speak his truth through us to the person that he might bring across our path. I, I've heard people say, teachers say, trainers say when it comes to evangelism, you know, you just get out there and do what you're supposed to do. You just share that message. You just pound them with that. It's almost like you pound, you pound them with like a football you know, promotion. You pound them with that message. And if they don't receive that message, well, you just knock the dust off your feet and head on down the road. And, you know, there's enough, it's kind of like, there's enough truth in what he just said just to be dangerous. Because that's not what Jesus meant when he told his disciples that. You know, I use the example when training as an MP in the, in the army and stuff. They gave us 16 hours of judo. You know what that is? That's called dangerous. <laughs> You try to use that on somebody, you're going to get yourself hurt. You know, you know enough just to get... And I think we, 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 we apply enough truth so we can feel good about what we've done and so that we think that the approach that we, we do it brings them to conviction and we, can, and we can feel like we've done our part. There's so much that goes on that's just very concerning to my heart. And some of you guys see this stuff all over the world and you're, you know... I, I'm not sure that, that sometimes even we Americans, when we go into other other countries and stuff, somehow go go to those other countries feeling like we're we're there to be their saviors, and we're not there to be their saviors. We're there to share the message. The gospel is not a Western message. Amen. Amen. Everybody got that? It, it, we're not there to make people a bunch of Americans. You know, and I I can say from personal experience, I've gone to Mexico with that attitude. I've gone to Haiti with that attitude. These poor people need me to come down and tell them how far they are and what needs to be very right. By the time I leave that place, the Holy Spirit said, did you learn anything? Did they teach you anything? And they did every time. They did every time. That doesn't mean that there are not people down there that don't need Jesus. The same way that there are people here that need Jesus. But I think we need to step back again. And we, we need to that new that the word that they're being seem to be used on. We need a new paradigm when it comes to how we to how we share our gospel. And really, it's not a new one. It's getting back to <laughs> getting back to you know what the first century church did. Think about it. They had no position to speak from. No position. They had no power to speak from from a worldly thing. Okay. They had no prominence in the community. They were they rejected. They were the ones that were cast away. They were the ones that were persecuted. They were the ones that were hated. They did not do it from a place of wealth because many of them gave up their wealth to be followers of Jesus Christ. Okay? From everything that, we, that we have, we're being taught that the church needs in order to have an impact upon the world that we live in today, they did not have it in the first century church. Yet, of that group of people, they were called those who turned their world upside down. Oh. I love it when people throw books at me. First century Christianity. When is the last time you heard said about the church in our day anywhere 
that they are the people that God used to turn the world upside down. And it's not a matter of methodology comparing the first century church to the modern century. It's not a matter of methodology. It's a matter of the heart. Our, not the world's heart. The world's always been messed up. Okay? I always thought about when I think about those guys in the first century. They didn't. You know what? Those poor guys, those poor, ignorant, first century Christians didn't know anything better than to trust the Holy Spirit and walk in His power. If they were just advanced in 2,000 years, advanced to be where we are, they could be just as ineffective as we are in the church today. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, and I haven't read this book yet, so I'm not promoting it, but Chip will promote it. But anyway, it's not a methodology thing, guys, in the sense of how they did what they did. They did what they did because it's where they were. It is, it is, it is who did through them what needed to be done. And their willingness to receive and rely upon the Holy Spirit to be who he needs to be in the church. The church will reach our community and the world when the church gets serious about being surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God. That will move us to a place where our hearts are right with him. That will move us always to a place of humility and brokenness before each other and before the world. Now, I said all that. Now let's get into the passage. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, verses 1, 1 through 4 is what we'll look at tonight. So therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind that each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only uh, for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Do you realize what could happen in the body of Christ if this was so? When I do marriage counseling, I, I talk to, to married couples or, or, or uh, those who are, are going to be married, and one, one, thing I, one thing I always say to them is you'll hear the world will tell you that, that marriage is a 50-50 proposition. I said, if you go into marriage with a 50-50 attitude, your marriage is probably going to fail. Because it is not a 50-50. Because if, as long as it's a 50-50, you're always waiting for your partner to come up to that 50. Or when you think you've done your half part of it, you stop. I said, biblical marriage, is, the Bible says we give ourselves completely to that other person. It is 100%, 100%. And, and, and from your attitude, I tell the groom, from your attitude... You're going to give 100% to your wife expecting, not expecting that back. And then I tell from her. Now think about it. If everybody had that attitude in the body of Christ, or in the marriage, that would transform marriage in the church. But if everybody had that in the body of Christ, that would transform the body of Christ. I would guess that we're not too dissimilar from, any, from many other churches uh, in America. On any given Sunday, we can have people running around this church upset, mad, discouraged, talking about what they didn't get, who didn't recognize them, who didn't acknowledge them, who didn't let them do what they wanted to do, who didn't get their way. Oh, not our church, Pastor. Yeah, our church. It happens every week in this church. I can't tell you the number of people that come up to me right before I'm about ready to share the message and, and unload those wonderful things. I'm so grateful the Holy Spirit is bigger than, than our pettiness. By the way, I, I'm going to say this again. If someone starts that garbage in your ear, 
Don't listen. You know what? If they don't have anybody listen to them, they don't have anything to say. The thought of our modern church is saying, I exist to be a blessing and to pour myself out, out into my brother and my sister's life. That's why I'm here. It's not about me. It's not about what I like, what I want. What even, it's not even about what I need. But here's the wonderful thing about everybody looking to the needs of others before they look to themselves. You don't have to worry about getting what you need. It'll be there. Like at that marriage, 100%, 100%, when that's going on, when that's the intention of both, both the, the husband and the wife, needs are met. They're automatically met. And they're not met because they're demanded. And they're not met because we pout. They are met because we have this intention to give ourselves completely to one another. To see our marriage partner, to see our brothers and sisters in Christ as more important than we are. And we just want God to bless their socks off. That's what we want. We want God to to bless them. And you know, if we're connected in, in biblical unity, every time someone is blessed in the church, we're blessed in the church. Every time God does something in someone's life, he does something in our life. Because, because we, are, we are tied together. We're inseparable. That's the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for. Remember in the garden, Father, as you and I are one, I pray that they will be one in us. That's the kind of unity. That unity can only happen, can only move as we, as we consider the words of Paul here and we, and we walk as people that are unified in true humility. Now, anybody remember my... My little def- you know I got definitions for everything, so my little definitions for what true humility is. See? Here's your test. Go. Not thinking of yourself at all. Okay, that's that's good. You jumped ahead. I like the first part. You didn't play it up. <laughs> yeah, but that's right. Well think about it. True biblical humility, as as I understand it, it's my little thing. It's not too think it's not thinking too much of yourself. It's not thinking too little of yourself. Because you can be self-focused by being conceited or be, being self-debasing. You got what I'm saying? So true humility is not thinking too much of yourself. It's not thinking too little of yourself. It's as, as Kelly said there. It's not thinking of yourself at all. Boy, to get there. Okay. And yet, we'll find out next week that that is the example of Jesus Christ. That's, and then that, Paul says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. So it's a call that we have. So, let's look at this passage for a few minutes together before we, before we leave this place tonight. He begins in verse 1 by reminding us, first of all, what we do have in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what's true in our Christian life. We have promise upon promise upon promise that comes to us from God through Christ Jesus. Amen? There are so many. You could spend the rest of your life studying the promises we have in, in Christ Jesus, Okay? Those promises are real. Those promises are eternal. Those promises are, 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 are without, uh, without uh, what I say, God doesn't give them and take them back. They're not those kind of promises. They, they, they come from God himself. So when you look at the promise we have in Christ Jesus, yet you don't see those promises becoming real in people's lives, in the church life, in individual life. And stuff. Can I ask you, what's the problem? Or maybe I put it this way, who's the problem? I mean, they're there. They come from God. God doesn't give and take away what God gives. He gives us. So the things that God has given us in his son, Jesus Christ, 
are certainly ours, ours because we belong to him in his son, Jesus Christ. So when, when those things are not manifest in our life, who's the problem? Well, the answer is I'm the problem. They're there. They're called to be recognized. They're called to be received. And they're called to be lived. So it's interesting that Paul in verse 1 kind of throws out these promises of God, which are promises of God, and the intent of God for his church from a position of questioning them. Therefore, if there, therefore, if there, what's he say? What are the, what are the, if there is any consolation in Christ, the word in consolation there, some of your uh, translations might use a word that's more familiar to you on that. If there's any encouragement in Christ. Can I ask you this? Is there any encouragement in Christ Jesus? Yes. Oh, of course so. There's all kinds of gobs. Like that theological term, gobs. <laughs> of, 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 of encouragement. He, he, he ever lives to pour life and encouragement and, and goodness into us. Not because he have to, has to, but because that's who he is. Okay? So Paul's not questioning if there is any encouragement in Christ. He's not questioning the, the promises of God in Christ Jesus when it comes to the matter of encouragement. He's declaring that there is encouragement in Christ, but he's trying to call them to recognize what they have. So they start living in it. I'm not sure if the church is just ignorant or willfully ignorant or apathetic. You know what I'm ignorant. I'm not sure that they don't know. I'm not sure if they willfully ignorant. I'm not sure if they don't want to know. Or apathetic. I'm not sure if we know, yet we don't care. So the challenge of the apostle here to the church is if there is any encouragement or consolation in Christ. He's called to know that there's encouragement in Christ. Start acting like it. Start living like it. Start being what Christ has called you to be. Don't live under your, underneath your birthright. So the next thing he says, he doesn't stop there. If there's any comfort in love. Well, anybody, any of you know the love of God? You're born again. At least you know that love of God. Is there any comfort in the love of God? I've written some things here lately, which I hope reminds you, reminds you that, that the love of God is not conditional upon your performance. God loves you because he loves you. that great comfort? I'm glad God's love doesn't, do, doesn't act like my performance because that would mean his love would go like this, like this, like this. Sometimes it would be, be a big nose dot. Okay? Here's what you, I want to always remind people of. God loves you perfectly. And I like to say that. And God loves you enormously. Okay? He loves you perfectly. God's love can never be anything different than it is right now. And that ought to be great comfort for you. Because what it means is this. It means that he will never, ever, ever, ever love you less than he loves you right now. The second thing it means is he can't possibly love you any more than he loves you right now. That's because his love is perfect. And his love doesn't change based on our performance. We are accepted of God in Christ Jesus. And we are, listen, it says we are joint heirs with Christ Jesus. That means everything that the Father pours out to His Son is poured out to us. Do you think the Father loves His Son? You... Okay. See, some of you were pretty good this morning responding. You're going to be better tonight because I got a smaller group here tonight. So, but think about that. Just I want you. Do you ever think about it that way? 
How much do you think that God loves Jesus? How much do you think the Father loves the Son? Do you understand that He loves you that much? That ought to just bless your socks off. Because you could spend your whole life sometimes in this world, even in marriage relationships and friendship relationships, and never really experience that kind of love or anything near that kind of love. But here's what you can know, that God loves you that way. If nobody else does, God does. And that love can never change. And again, it's not based upon your performance. It's based upon that you're his child. Okay? How many of you look at your kids and go, Oh, you're a mess, but I love you. <laughs> and then you look at your grandkids and say, Man, I should have skipped a generation. Because <laughs> they're perfect and we love them. So, anyway... So, you know, we look at this stuff and, and, and it's, to me, it's just powerfully, just a powerful reminder that the apostle pours in that sometimes we just, we bypass verse one and say, okay, if, well, so he said, there is comfort and love. The second one, is there, if, if any fellowship in the spirit, well, is there any fellowship in the spirit? Of course there is. Without the spirit of God, we could not even be a body. We could not be the church. There would be, you understand, without the Spirit of God, there would be no life in the church. There would be, certainly be no power in the church. It was Jesus himself said, I'm going to send you my Spirit, and it is so needful for you, for you to, that I send my Spirit, because he will take everything that is mine, and he will give it to you. He will teach you, he will guide you, he will comfort you, he will empower you. He will make you witnesses of me. He will do all these things. And only the Spirit can do those things. He will be the life in the church. You know, when you jump ahead to the book of Revelation the seven, and the messages to the seven churches, do you remember there in every one of those ones there's a candle stand? In every one of those churches there's a candle stand. You know what that candle stand represents? Do you know what that represents? It represents the Spirit of God in the body of Christ. And sadly, on at least a couple of those churches, he said, if you don't turn around, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your candle stand. We have no life without the Spirit. I fear, I fear from the depths of my being that, that most evangelical churches in the Western world can do what they do every day, every week, regardless of whether or not the Spirit shows up or not. And that's a sad indictment of where the church is. We should be... We should be... <laughs> Involved in supernatural things. And we need again to be dependent upon him. The last thing he says here in verse 1. He says, if any affection and mercy. And of course in the body of Christ. In our relationship with God. There is much affection. And there is much mercy. So what is isn't affection love? Well, not necessarily. You know, I like, I like the thought. And I'll just be a little, if you'll let me be personal. Here, I don't care. I'll just say it anyway, whether you let me be or not. <laughs> you see, I love Teresa. Okay, but you know what else? I like Teresa. She's not only my wife; she's my best friend. So it's not just that I love her, but I just like being around her. You know, she certainly is my better half. We don't need any amens at this part. We'll just let this go. <laughs> Uh, but, but you understand. I, I, I just I want you to understand the difference between the love that he talks about here and the affection. 
because, because it does speak of the effect. You know, there's a lot of things that go with love that, that there's a lot of things that go with love that don't necessarily touch our emotions or, or need to touch emotions. But when he used that word affection, he moves from, from, from that, that place of, of just describing that fullness of love to a place where it really touches who we are. Okay? So there's mercy and there's affection. So the Paul, uh, the, the apostle, excuse me, Paul, wants us to know what we have in Christ Jesus. And, and again, this is not an intellectual exercise. We're not, we're not studying just so we can answer a question. What do, we, what do you have in Christ Jesus? That's not his point. It's not so you can pass a test. In a, in a class. It's so you can know what you have in Christ Jesus. And so that we can step into it, live in it, walk in it, and, and, and see the result of these things in our life. You got it? it again, it's not, just, it's not just so we can do this theoretically. This is what we have. This, this ought to be the reality. I, I, I desire for myself and for, for our church to take these living words off the page. And put them in our hearts. Because when they, when they enter that place, when they enter our heart, then they, then they impact our lives. And that's what it's all about. So these are the things we have in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, look at how he continues it. He says, fulfill my joy. So you have these things in Christ Jesus. Receive these things. Believe in these things. Trust these things. Now that he says that, fulfill my joy. How? Being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. The word that he's using, that we can use there in verse 2 that, that, the, that the disciple is concerned about is unity. Be one. Be unified. It is the last prayer that Jesus prayed on this earth. And if you remember that prayer in the Gospel of John, Jesus remembered you and me in that prayer. He prayed for himself. He prayed for the 12, or the 11 at that time. And then he prayed for us. Lord, I, Father, I not only pray for these whom you have given me, but I pray for those also who will believe because of their testimony. Guess who that is? That's me. You and I believe because of the testimony of the apostles. Because they were faithful. And every missionary, and every evangelist, and every pastor... And every born-again Christian doesn't carry a specific title that walked in the Holy Spirit from that time until our time. We are somewhat indebted to them for their faithfulness of carrying that, that, the purity of that message. And that, that message is, is that we are unified. We are one in Christ Jesus. This is a continual theme for the Apostle Paul. You read in the book of Corinthians, uh, particularly, he was so concerned about disunity in the body of Christ. He was so concerned about people who would lift themselves up to a place of position or, or some, somehow uh, considering themselves to be spiritually superior to other people in the church. And they began to judge each other and evaluate each other by whatever gift that they had or, 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 or however God chose to use them. And, and they, and they began to heap up for themselves uh, teachers. And, and you remember in that passage where Paul says, you know, some of you say you're a Paul. And some of you say you're a Cephas. And some of you say you're a Paulus. And some of you say you're of Jesus. <laughs> and then he gives a place that, it's an interesting question. Is Jesus divided? And the answer could be, well, yes, he is in our churches. Yes, he is in the mind of the religionists. 
as it has been from the very beginning, where people decide, I'm going to follow this guy, I'm going to follow that guy, I'm going to follow this movement, I'm going to follow this group, instead of saying, I, I follow Jesus. I've been pastor of four different churches in the last 35 years. One of the things I've shared with every church, I did it to this church too, some of you don't remember, it's probably been 11 years ago. It hasn't been almost 11 years ago. I say to the church, if you're looking for a traditional Baptist pastor, I'm not your man. I am Baptist. I was raised in a Baptist church. I, was, I went in a Baptist nursery and had my diapers changed there. That, I want to put that in, in the right category, you know. Uh, but you know what I am more than anything else? I'm a born-again child of God. I, I want to preach the Bible. I want to exalt Jesus. And if I can do that as a Southern Baptist, I'll do it as a Southern Baptist. If it gets to a place I can't do it as a Southern Baptist, I'll leave being a Southern Baptist. Because we're disciples of Jesus, not disciples of a denomination. That doesn't make the denomination bad. It's just we've got to keep our priorities, priorities what they are. And denomination, denominationalism done wrongly has caused more schisms and divides in the body of Christ than anything I can really think of. And many times it's over things that are not issues that should divide. There are issues that should divide, I understand that. Our unity is in Christ. Our unity is in the Word of God. And we need to, we need to hold to those fundamentals of, of who we are. And, and, and we should not compromise those things at all. Because unity is not, not found on the basis of compromise of truth. Unity is found on the basis of truth. Everybody got that? So sometimes there are reasons to divide when you talk about people who deny who Jesus is and they deny what Jesus did. We have no unity because biblical unity is always based upon the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And, and the point is, it's not our intention to divide from other people, but sometimes the truth causes division. All right? So uh, the Apostle Paul echoes what he says elsewhere that, that he's not, by the way, he's not talking about Lost people here so much, he's talking about the church. This is an epistle. And he's concerned that the body of Christ be one. He, he goes on, he said, be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, can I ask you, whose mind? Whose mind? I mean, pastor's mind? The elder's mind? The deacon's mind? Let's do something, what we Baptists have been good for. What's the will of the people? My response to that has always been, who cares? <laughs> because the church is not here to find out what the will of the people is. We're here to find out what the will of God is. So who's mine? Christ's mind. And Paul tells us that, he says, we are to take on the mind of Christ. The church has how many heads? You understand anything that has more than one head is a monster. The church has one head. It's Jesus. He's the only head. He's the only mind that we ought to be desired to be like. He's the only one we ought to be desiring to listen to. He's the only one that, that we should be following. And he's the only one that should be leading. And Paul's saying this. He's not saying come to agreement on everything. He's not even saying come to, to come to a table and compromise these things. He's saying, come, get on your face before God, and the Holy Spirit will show you what the mind of Christ is in any situation. 
I don't know that we believe that, but it's true. In any situation, if the church would seek the face of God and desire the mind of Christ on any situation, I believe God would show us, if we really want it. I think God wants to show us more than we want him to show us. I believe he wants to reveal more to us than, than we're willing to let him reveal to us. I think it would scare most, most modern-day Christians to have Jesus actually tell us things. It's easier to get a committee together to it. It's easier to take a vote. Instead of really seeking what the mind of Christ is. So his desire is that they would have genuine unity. And notice what he says this will do for the apostle. Now, you say this kind of seems kind of self-serving by Paul, but in a, it really is. That's not his attitude. Because remember, he's talking about the attitude of humility, and he's trying, to, he's trying to walk this too. But his point here is not just, make me happy. That's not, that's not what his point is. Because he's not calling them to make Paul happy. He's calling them to, to be who God has called them to be in Christ Jesus and to be one in Christ Jesus. And what he's saying is, when this happened, I can't help but be happy. My joy can't help but be full. The same way we should be. We shouldn't be doing things to make each other happy. We should be, we should be listening to the Lord, following the Lord, trusting the Lord, walking in the Lord. And because we are one heart, one mind, one body, when we see that happening, we can't help but be happy. We can't help but be happy. To see Jesus exalted and glorified in someone's life, how can you not be happy? To see lives change and transformed by the power of God, how can you not be happy? See, that's the point here. And, and it's funny how, you know, when we read things, how you read things, well, it, it's perception. And we, we, usually, we usually react to perception. And I've had people say, well, Paul, he's kind of self-centered, isn't he? He wants them to make him happy. Well, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, I want you to be, I desire for you to be everything that God has called you to be and to be one in Christ Jesus. And when I see this, I can't help but be happy. I can't help but rejoice. That's the kind of joy that we need to have in the body of Christ. Well, let's look at the last thing. We'll close out our time tonight. Verse 3 and 4 is where he, uh, he talks about the practice of biblical humility. Or you could say the application of of biblical humility. Let nothing. Okay? Let nothing. It's interesting. In You go back to the Greek. The word let and be done are not there. So, reading this straightly from the Greek to the, to the English, it would, it would read like this. Nothing through ambi- self, selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Nothing. Nothing. He doesn't even talk about so much about the application here in the original Greek, but it's understood. That's why you, you have the, that in italics there. Is that the, the emphasis is there should be nothing, either in action, in thought, or in an intent in the body of Christ that is from what? From, from selfish ambition or conceit. It's not just the action. The action is there. I, I, agree with, I agree with what they're saying. The action is there. But it is the intent of the heart that drives the action every time. What did Jesus say? It's out of the heart that comes who we are. Okay? So what he's saying here, nothing from, nothing from, not just 
let nothing be done. Nothing from selfish ambitiousness. In the body of Christ, nothing from. Again, not thought, not action, not intent, nothing from that. Because we have a tendency, again, to approach this way. Well, I didn't do anything for myself. My actions were, but in my mind, I really wanted it for myself. So, I did it. My actions was what they were supposed to be, although my heart wasn't in it. That's a cop-out. My heart wasn't in it, but I did it anyway. The apostle says, no, your heart needs to be in it, too. Okay, your heart, because God's not, God's not ever satisfied with just action. He's always concerned about the heart. Anybody remember an Old Testament? Uh, my Sunday school teacher sitting right here taught it not too long ago. Uh, anybody remember an Old Testament king by the name of Saul? What did he do? What did he do? What did he do that he considered was good and, and God should be pleased or appeased by it? But the prophet said, no, Saul, you're wrong. See, he did the right thing. At least he thought he did. Remember? He got caught doing what was wrong, blamed the people. Then he said, oh, but by the way, I sacrificed a God at Gilgal. And the prophet looks, looks at the king. I think he looks right through the king. The Holy Spirit shows him. He looks right through the king. He says, listen, Saul, God has no great pleasure in the sacrifice of bulls and goats. What God is concerned about, Saul, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase it here, what God is concerned about, Saul, is your heart. Now the word that's used there is obedience. Now notice what we usually, we usually tie obedience just to action. And Paul could have, excuse me, Saul could have defended himself. Listen, I did the right thing. So the prophet wasn't talking about what he did. The prophet was talking about the intent of his heart. To offer a sacrifice to God to appease God or to get by with disobedience is not what it's about. That's why just going to church and giving your offering or even giving some of your time, that's not what it's about. God is concerned, always concerned about the heart. And as Paul reminds us here, he says, he says it's not just, it's not that you just don't do things from, from selfish ambition or conceit. It, he's concerned about the heart. What is the motivation? And we ought to always be t- checking our motive. Now, I don't know. I, I say I don't know. God can do anything. Which includes, if we really wanted to, God could give us pure motives. Now, I don't know if I could say to you that I've ever done anything purely out of good motive. I want to believe I have, but I'm not sure. And God's bigger even than, you know, our shortcomings when it comes out. But that's what the apostle's calling us to. To have those pure motives before God. So when we get before our Savior, it's not just a matter of what do I need to do. It, it, it needs to be an approach of saying, Lord, where's my heart? What needs to happen to my heart so that I can be that vessel that you're ready to use however you want to use it? So it's not done out of the wrong motive on my part. It's not done so I'm lifting myself up or conceit or, or, or selfish ambition. 
He goes on in verse 3, the last part, to say, But in lowliness of mind, let each <coughs> esteem others better than, than himself. When you look to the needs of others, then you, you have less time. You can put it this way. When you, when, you have, when you look to the needs of others, you have less time to, look, to be concerned about your own needs. Have you ever ministered in someone's life? And, and then on the other side of you, well, maybe you entered that time of ministering. Maybe you were hungry. Maybe you were thirsty. Maybe you had some things you needed to do. Maybe you had something else on your schedule, but God put you in someone else's life. And all of a sudden, those things that were so important before you started, they just kind of faded away. Remember the time that Jesus was with the woman at the well? And he sent his disciples into town and said, we need some food. So he sent his disciples into, into town. He was hungry. But while they were gone, remember he had the encounter with the woman at the well. By the time the disciples got back, Jesus said, I'm satisfied. Who fed you? You know who fed him? The Holy Spirit fed him. It's a a marvelous thing when we start looking genuinely to the needs of others, to minister into their life, to make a difference, to to let Christ make a difference to us in their life. It's, It's an amazing thing how he satisfies every need that we have. The last verse. He said, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. That sounds very similar to Jesus when he talked about the second greatest of the commandment. That we are to love one another as we love ourselves. Now, I think part of this, this verse and even the love ourselves part, for the most part, goes, it almost goes without saying. We usually don't have any trouble loving ourselves. And we usually don't have any trouble looking out to our own needs. Okay? But the point now is to expand that. Love others as you love yourself. Look to the needs of others as you also look to your own needs. To expand that. To to extend the blessings of God. said it hundreds of times since I've been here. That is, we are blessed of God to be a blessing. We are not blessed of God to talk about how blessed we are. And we're never blessed of God to just hoard those blessings to ourselves and, and keep a little chart of where, we, where we're at. Every time God blesses you, I believe, his, every time God blesses I believe there's a, his intent is that we might be a blessing to someone else. So we need to have that heart that's looking for that. And that's not, that, blessings come in all different ways, shapes and forms and stuff. Okay. I think we're going to stop there. We'll start up next week as we look at Paul is going to call us next week to even deeper. He's going to tell us to be like Christ. Oh no, Paul, I'm going to struggle with this one. Not possible. Oh, with man, this may be impossible. With God, all things are possible. We'll talk about that next week. Hope you've been encouraged. I hope you've been challenged. I hope the Holy Spirit touched your heart. Okay? Let's pray together and then... Uh, then we'll be, we'll be dismissed from this place. Jared, Rebecca, would you voice your prayer? Lord God, we just come before you and thank you for Paul and how you spoke through him to tell us all out through the ages of time to be humble and to consider others more important than ourselves. Lord, help us be mindful of your word and help us digest it into our lives as we go this week and meet with other people. Uh, Lord, let your word permeate through us 
We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Thank you all for coming tonight. You could have been somewhere else, I know.